I want to take a moment before the show to let all of you know about a new horror anthology that I just read and really enjoyed. The book is called Shredded, and uh, that title is a double entendre because this is a collection of body horror stories about sports and fitness. So double meaning of shredded there. Now, the stories are awesome. Uh, These include pieces about a murdery yoga cult, also why you really shouldn't use performance-enhancing drugs, and also why you definitely should wear a helmet. I really hope that someday we'll have an opportunity to cover at least one of the stories in Shredded over on Elder Sign someday, but until then, I hope that you'll grab a copy for yourself. I've put a link in the show notes to make that easy for you, but of course you can also order the book from your local bookshop. Again, the book is called Shredded, and I hope you grab a copy today. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your How Many of Me Are There Anyway? speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode, we are talking about The Man Who Folded Himself by David Gerald. This book was originally published in 1973, but I've read an updated version called the 21st Century Edition, and this was done in 2003. And while I don't have the original to compare it with, the author's note suggests that the changes were merely cosmetic, because this is a story that is meant to take place in the the now of the reader. But that's getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, so let's talk about David Gerald before we get into the book. As a young man, I mean a really young man in fact, Gerald was a writer for Star Trek, the original series, and most famously he wrote The Trouble with Tribbles, which usually makes it onto people's lists of, of, of favorites, of certainly of... of original series episodes, if not of all Trek episodes. And in fact, at the time that I'm recording this, Valerie and I have somehow managed to not cover this episode on Lower Decks, but you can bet that we will correct that someday. Gerald also helped Gene Roddenberry develop Star Trek The Next Generation, but then he left that project before the first season was even over. And if you're a Trekker, then you know that there was a lot of turmoil those first two years of TNG. But somehow, I had never realized that David Gerald had gone on to be a science fiction novelist, and that he'd had two novels nominated for both the Hugo and the Nebula, and that one of his shorter pieces won both of those awards. How I became aware of that is simply because this book was nominated by one of our Patreon supporters, and then it won that vote, and it won that vote handily. So I feel like everyone but me knew about this book, but that's great. That's part of the fun of doing the show this way. And that brings us to the other piece of business before we really get into the book, and that is that we have arrived, finally, at the point where everything, or just about everything anyway, Everything that we cover here is going to be chosen by the network's Patreon supporters. And this is something that I am very excited about. I love seeing how the voting works out on our other shows. It's going to be a lot of fun for me to have ATAS in that mix as well. I mean, I just love looking at the votes as they come in. So let me tell you how that works, and then we'll talk about this vote. Most of the shows that we do here cover content that is selected by our Patreon supporters at the Archon level and above. And so we conduct votes on odd-numbered months, usually the last two weeks of those months. The surveys come from our email, which is claytemplemedia at gmail.com, and they're sent via SurveyMonkey because their their survey platform is just a lot better than Patreon's, though if that changes, we'll, we'll, we'll happily use the Patreon platform. 
And so if you're interested in having a say in what we cover here, please do check us out on patreon.com slash Clay Temple Media. We're tremendously grateful for all the support that we have. I mean, and surprised by what we've been able to do. And of course, the more support that we get, then the more podcasting we get to do. And we love doing podcasting for you guys. So let's talk about this vote, since it's the very first story that we're covering from this batch. We had seven books on the ballot, and I'm going to take the top three of them this time. And coming in first was this book. But it really only just edged out The Dry Salvages by Caitlin R. Kiernan, who is uh, someone we've covered over on Elder Sign before. And coming in third was The Deep, which is a high fantasy novel by John Crowley. Uh, we've covered some Crowley before. We did a short story of his on uh, as one of the monthly Patreon bonus episodes that we do. But The Deep was actually tied with Vacuum Flowers by Michael Swanwick, who is someone else we've covered before. Uh, we've talked about his story, The Scarecrow's Boy, on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. Uh, in fact, he's also been on the show in a sense. But The Deep was nominated by one of our supporters, and so I used that fact as the tiebreaker there. And the books that didn't make it then were The Memory of Earth by Orson Scott Card, The House with a Clock in Its Walls by John Belairs, and Idlewild by Nick Sagan. So those are going to go back on the ballot, also The Swanwick as well. And they're going to be joined by Rendezvous with Rama by Arthur C. Clarke, The Star King by Jack Vance, and Finch by Jeff Vandermeer. So all of that will be on the next ballot. But all right, that was a lot of preamble, and uh, we'll have less of that next time. But I, I think now we are ready to get into the show. So let's go. Let's talk about The Man Who Folded Himself. The Man Who Folded Himself is a time travel story, but it is nothing at all like Doomsday Book by Connie Willis, which is the other time travel book that we've done here. This isn't about someone traveling to another time and having an adventure or misadventure while there, or even hopping through a bunch of different times. It is a small and it's a, a tightly focused exploration about the paradoxes of time travel and what happens when we encounter multiple versions of ourselves. Our protagonist is Daniel Eakins, a regular enough guy just going to college in L.A. He doesn't really like school and he doesn't seem to do it with any particular purpose other than the fact that he's living off of a trust fund and getting his monthly allowance is conditional on going to class. This fund is administered by his Uncle Jim, who is old and, and perhaps unwell, and has stopped by to encourage Dan to keep going to school. On top of that, he wants him to start keeping a diary, and that actually is going to turn out to be the book that we're reading. This is Dan's first-person account of his life. Uncle Jim also explains that Dan's trust fund is worth $143 million, and that, in fact, he can have it right now if he wants. There's no more legal obstacle to him getting it. But Dan decides to keep living his life the way that he has been. I mean, his allowance is already enough for his needs, and it even lets him travel on the weekend, so he's got all of his needs met and has enough over for really all of the luxuries that he wants as well. And then, a few days later... Uncle Jim dies, and it turns out that there actually is no $143 million, and there never was. In fact, there's only a few thousand dollars left in the fund. It's really about three months of Dan's allowance. Now, of course, this is confusing. It's also frightening to Dan, but there is something else that Uncle Jim has left him. A belt. And Gerald spent some time on Dan's discovery here, but I think that we can skip that and just get straight to it. The belt is a time machine. Now, we've already established that Dan has an obstacle in his life. He's about to run out of money. And so that is initially where we go with the time machine. I mean, he's going to biff Tan in his way to a fortune by betting on horse races that he knows the outcome to. 
And in the process of doing this, he encounters another version of himself, a version just one day older, but a version who has already done this and has some advice. It's going to turn out that there is still another version of himself who is giving advice to the one day older version. And eventually there are going to be a lot of Dan's who are uh, attempting to make a smooth and good life for themselves. But from the perspective of our narrator, Dan, what he's really found is a friend. He and his other self, who takes the name Don, Dan and Don, they, they go out together and they have dinner and they enjoy each other's company, though I'm not sure that I would enjoy having dinner with, uh, with Glan or Glan. I'm not, it's not, not for me, for sure. The next day, Dan, of course, is now Don. He's a day ahead and he has to go back to Dan and help him out and so on. Much of the early part of the narrative is about how time travel works and whether there can be paradoxes and so on. And what we learn, and we, we learn this as Dan himself learns it from both his own experiences and also the user manual that he's been able to access on the belt. And what we learn is that he's not really traveling through time. What he's doing is making an alternate universe every time he jumps. And so there is no objective timeline to protect or, or anything like that. So Dan uses this time machine to enrich himself. He goes back in time. He makes sound investments in big companies, including the Transcontinental Railroad, uh, Bell Telephone. He buys a lot of land around Orlando just before Disney decided that they might like to build a new theme park there. He also does a fair bit of sightseeing. He's fascinated by assassinations and alternate history. And so he's there for JFK, Abraham Lincoln. He messes with Hitler and even Jesus. And there's an interesting passage about this, this last one, about Jesus, that I would like to read. Once, I created a world where Jesus Christ never existed. Yeshua ben Yusuf went out into the desert to fast, and he never came back, never went to Jerusalem, never got crucified, never had followers. The 20th century I returned to was different, alien. The languages were different, the clothing styles, the maps, everything. The cities were smaller, the buildings were shorter, and the streets were narrower. There were fewer cars, and they seemed ugly and inefficient. There were slave traders in the city that would have been New York. There were temples to gods I didn't recognize. Everything was wrong. I could have been on another planet. Now, of course, he puts everything back, and, and this is really the last episode that we get like this, because all the sightseeing is really kind of lonely for him. He ends up just wanting to spend time with other versions of himself, and, and there is even a mansion in Malibu in 1999 where he and other versions of himself live in a kind of endless party that older and younger versions can jump in and out of. And eventually, this closeness even leads to a sexual relationship with another version of himself. And this is a, a long and significant part of the narrative that we're really going to focus on in the next segment. But somehow, as time goes on, our narrator realizes that his jumps through time are erasing other versions of himself. And in fact, he hasn't seen another version of himself in a long time. Indeed, his own childhood has been erased. He decides to jump back thousands of years to a point earlier than any he's gone to before in order to see if he can set this right so that he can get his other selves back or at least start making new other versions again. And all the way back there in prehistoric Malibu, he actually finds another version of himself who's doing the same thing. But this version is a woman named Diane, who got her time machine from an Aunt Jane rather than from an Uncle Jim. The same type of sexual and romantic attraction that Dan had for the other male versions of himself is at play with Diane as well. And they begin a sexual relationship that's going to last for years. And they just live back here in prehistoric Malibu for quite a while. And Diane becomes pregnant, and she gives birth to a son, but then she and Dan break up, and she leaves. 
we'll come back to the baby in just a moment. But before we do that, we have Dan's death we need to deal with. Dan visits the house in 1999. This has come back now and everything is fine. And while he is there, an older version of himself shows up and dies. And this is a really traumatic event for our narrator, Dan, and really for all the other versions of Dan who are present for this. It's a real crisis for Dan, who decides that he wants to stop time traveling and instead just wants to go raise his son back in the 1980s that is familiar to him. And of course, you're right, you see what's going to happen here. He takes on the persona of Uncle Jim. Indeed, he was always Uncle Jim. As our narrator is preparing for the death, he leaves this memoir with the, the time belt for the young Danny to inherit. And this book ends up with the young Danny writing two entries of his own as he thinks about whether he wants to use the time machine now that he knows everything that we know about the life of a time traveler. And in the end, he decides he does want that life. And the last line of the book is, I am going to put on the belt. The Man Who Folded Himself is largely about the philosophy of time. What is time? Is time travel possible? What would traveling through time do to chronologies? And so on. And so it seems like a good idea to start our themes and motifs segment there with these types of questions. And if you've been listening from the beginning, then you know that I have a small interest in the philosophy of time. And this is something that we talked about with Kim Stanley Robinson's book, The Memory of Whiteness. It's also in the fifth head of Cerberus over on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, if you want to check that out as well. Much of this book is a simple and lucid exploration of extremely complicated ideas about whether time travel could even be possible. Ultimately, of course, right, the premise of the book is that, yes, it is possible. And I'll say that this seems to be something of a gauntlet that Gerald is throwing down to other science fiction writers. Here's the dedication for the book. This book is for Larry Niven, a good friend who believes that time travel is impossible. He's probably right. And this just has me envisioning late-night conversations at the hotel bar during a con of some sort as the genesis of this book. And I certainly would read that fan fiction. But let's get to what Gerald does with the philosophy of time here. Time travel is a philosophical and a physical problem. Uh, let's just illustrate some of the problems, what some of them are. If it's possible to return to past events and participate in them, then doesn't that mean that the future is already determined? Uh, because past events required the intervention of future people? And if that is true, then we live in a universe in which all things have already happened. We have no free will. And that's a big deal. But even looking at a smaller example, which is what we get in this novel, if you went back in time to talk to an earlier version of yourself, how come you don't remember that happening? Let's take a look at some of the ways that Gerald deals with these questions and the, the possibility of paradoxes. And I'm just going to read a few passages here so that you'll get a taste of what Gerald is up to here. And it's all excellently done, I should say. The first of these passages is from an incident very early on in the book. It's, it's when Dan has two newspapers from the same future date, but which have totally different headlines. And how is that possible is the question that this is asking. I had the paper in my hands. It was real, but you couldn't take it back. I mean, forward to the future it came from because that future no longer existed. Shouldn't the newspaper cease to exist too? The Don who had come back in time to talk me out of the actions that had produced the time he had come from. What happened to him? Where was he now? If he stayed here, like the newspaper, he wouldn't disappear. Were there actually two of me now? In fact, he couldn't disappear unless he could get back to his own future, except that future didn't exist anymore, so he couldn't do that. And then a few pages later, still thinking about how he can have artifacts from two different futures and how he can be having dinners with future versions of himself, 
He thinks about paradoxes. And of course, this is a concept that we all know from Back to the Future, but let's remember that this was written first, and it probably influenced Back to the Future. I I, I see those fingerprints all over Back to the Future now. So here's Dan thinking about paradoxes. For one thing, paradoxes were supposed to be impossible. Oh sure, I know, time travel makes the most horrendous of paradoxes possible, even probable. But that's just not so. A paradox would be a violation of the laws of nature. By definition, they're the laws of nature and inviolable. Therefore, paradoxes are impossible. Because if paradoxes were possible, then time travel would have to be impossible. Otherwise, we'd have people killing their grandfathers right and left. We'd have people seducing their mothers or kidnapping their fathers. We'd have time travelers killing the inventors of time machines. We'd have all manner of anachronisms and flukes. And the laws of nature would be violated in so many different ways, it would take the invention of a whole new science to catalog them all. But time travel was possible. I had proved it myself. So paradoxes were impossible. And then a few pages after this, we get the explanation about how time travel is possible. And I've already said in the recap that it's dependent on the construction of alternate universes. But here's how Gerald puts it. Think of an artist drawing a picture, but he's using indelible ink and he doesn't have an eraser. If he wants to make a change, he has to paint over a line with white. The line hasn't ceased to exist. It has just been painted over and a new line drawn on top. Subjectively, time travel is like that. I can lay down one timeline and then go back and do things differently the second time around. I can go back a third time and talk myself out of something, and I can go back a fourth time and change it still again. And in the end, the time stream is exactly what I've made it, the cumulative product of my changes. The closest I can get to the original is to go back and talk myself out of something. It won't be the same world, but the difference will be undetectable. The difference will be in me. And this is what Gerald shows us. It's a world where only the narrator has any real sense of the past and all the things that he's changed, even as he encounters other versions of himself. Indeed, one of the elements of this book that I really loved is that it's not actually clear how many narrators we have. Sure, we have only this one manuscript, but there are some indications that the Dan who writes the last sentence is not the same biological Dan who wrote the first. This is suggested in the middle of the book when we even have a few entries from Diane, the female version of Dan from some other time stream. Now, I have not gone back and tried to count how many different narrators we have or how many different versions of Dan we even encounter, but I have to say this would certainly be a fun exercise, especially if uh, you're interested in learning how to write a time travel story of your own. And I know I'm verging on moving into the next segment, but I do want to talk about one more element here before we do that, and that is the sex. As you guys know, in fact, I think I said there's not even that many episodes, I'm prudish, and I generally do not want any sex in my stories, but it is an extremely important element here. Though I will say that I might actually have ignored it if the edition of the book that I have didn't have a reflective note from David Gerald himself, written 30 years later and and looking back to the 1970s. He emphasizes that the first bit of sex that we have is two men, and and Gerald calls this the gay sequence, so I'll call it that too. And as he explains in this note, he is gay, and so writing this scene mattered a lot to him, and it mattered at a time when this would have been almost scandalously risque. And it is quite a detailed sequence. It's not graphic about the physical play-by-play, but it is detailed about the emotional connection, and, and also about the surprise that the narrator feels when he discovers that he enjoys having sex with another man. But there is also fear, and and there's also concern about social stigma here as well. And I won't read any of it here, but Gerald's autobiographical note about this, this note about the social changes that he's seen in his own lifetime, that's really about his journey to becoming an adoptive father, to, to seeing his son become an adult. This note is, I think, as good as the book itself, and I'm glad to have read it, and I highly recommend it. 
And on the topic of recommendations, let's just move straight into our strengths and weaknesses segment now. I have read more excerpts from The Man Who Folded Himself than I usually read from the books that we're covering. And I've done this in part because I just thought that the voice of the character was so strong and so enjoyable. One of the features of this voice that I haven't shown you, though, are the similes. And and these are great. They could give Raymond Chandler a run here. Here's my favorite. And this comes early in the book when when Dan has has just found out he's not actually rich, has, has just discovered that all Uncle Jim really left him was a belt. Here's what he says. I felt like a kid at Santa Claus's funeral. And I love this line. This is a line that I'm going to steal and use anytime I need to express my disappointment uh, about anything. And so from a wordsmithing and from a storytelling perspective, I thought this book was awesome. If there was any weakness to this book, it was that early on, Gerald leans a little too much into technobabble. And I guess we could just go ahead and call it technobabble. Uh, it's a technobabble about how the time machine works, what it looks like, uh, the user manual, and so on. I don't think we needed any of that. And especially early on, it got in the way of the story that Gerald wanted to get to. And I could really envision somebody bouncing off the first 10 pages of this book because of that. But at the same time, of course, this is a high concept science fiction story, and that is not easy to do. But Gerald nails it. This edition of the book that I've got, this 21st century edition, this also has an introduction by Robert J. Sawyer. And Sawyer, by the way, is a writer I love, and I would be very keen to cover him here on ATOS. And Sawyer has a lot to say about his personal journey with this book, but also about the merits of the book. And Sawyer explains just how important this book was in the development of the the time travel subgenre of science fiction, a subgenre that had largely been static since H.G. Wells invented it. But now all of our notions have been changed, and we can even see that with Marty McFly, right? And Sawyer says something here that I'm really excited about, which is that he thinks that this book ought to have won the Nebula in 1974 because it did the most to advance the genre. And the Nebula, by the way, is the award that SF writers give out to someone in the field. It's it's the writer's award. It's the award writers give to other writers for having done a good job. But what did win was Arthur C. Clarke's novel, Rendezvous with Rama. And you have already heard me say that title this episode because it is on the next ballot. And so if it wins, and by the time you're hearing this, we'll, we'll already know that, of course, so this won't be able to influence your vote. But if it wins, that is going to be a fun question to talk about. But I think since I'm already looking ahead to future episodes of ATOS, I think this is a good place to bring my review to a close. I hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me about the themes and motifs and the strengths and the weaknesses I've focused on, but especially on what I've left out. And I would be especially interested in hearing from listeners who read the original version of this book. I mean, perhaps even back in the 1970s. I mean, if you read this when this was new, I would love to hear about that. And something else that I didn't get to in this book is the narcissism that Dan takes on as he becomes a time traveler. Why does he cut himself off from people who aren't other versions of himself? I would love to talk about that, too. But all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDormand, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. Next time, we're going to be going back to outer space for the first time in quite a while with The Dry Salvages by Caitlin R. Kiernan. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merry world. 